Aloha, Kavika Miles here. First off, before we get started, I want to give a big old mahalo nui loa for taking time out of your life to listen to book one of my dystopian saga. Secondly, this free audiobook podcast is only made possible by those of you who buy some of my damn merch. It's easy. Just go over to damnitiloveamerica.com and pick yourself up an American tea, a dystopian tea, or hell, even get a copy of the book and read along with me. Regardless, I really do hope you enjoy Saga of the Nine Origins. Mahalo. Saga of the Nine Origins by Kavika Miles Read by the author Part 2. Amidst Violent Chaos. 8. The Pentagon, September 11th, 2036. Mr. Carter, do you have an explanation? The head councilman asks. Since the founding of the Minutemen Division, they have been looking for fallacies and cracks within the organizational structure. They have been unreasonable in their scrutiny and have been overtly subverting every one of Carter's efforts, all because they never believed. With the news headline beaming from the tablet, Carter gives the only response he can. What defines bravery? He simply questions. This is not the time for... The head councilman begins. Heroic action despite flaw, weakness, or fear. Your point, another asks on the council. My point is that those we have selected as part of this program are not perfect. They are not the cream of the crop, Carter finger quotes this part. They have their flaws, and yet they act for the good of this country. Mr. Carter, the head councilman begins again. What we're talking about is merit versus outcome, and the fact of the matter is a building collapsed because of Mr. Rouge's actions. The headline makes Carter more than furious. The whole point is for the division to circumvent conventional rules of engagement. However, he can't let loose his fury. Not right now, anyway. For now, he'll simply push the obvious. He is far from enthusiastic about Micah's approach, but a good soldier adapts and overcomes, accomplishing the mission by any means necessary. The council has provided little to no operational support, and if Carter's hand is going to be forced like this, he sides with the results his soldiers get. Yes, but no one was killed, and the primary objective was met. The local Ordian cell was stopped. This division was set up to expose and cut the throats of the enemies of our nation and more specifically, this Fourth Reich. Carter! The fury unprofessionally hissing from the councilman's mouth. Citizens are calling members of the division vigilantes. This is not the business we are in. And what will happen if Mr. Rouge or any other agent is compromised? Reputations are at stake. Last time he checked, the court of public opinion is mob rule. And luckily for them, they're siding with the division. 
But even if they weren't, who the hell cares what they think just so long as the mission is accomplished? This is what infuriates Carter with politics and the giant PR magnifying glass people like this use. They care more about image than results, political aesthetics than patriotic restoration. That won't happen, I can assure you, Carter says, holding his tongue with the direct approach. Can you? Your agents have been shedding an unnecessarily light on the program. A single agent, Carter corrects. Mr. Rouge has acted alone in every one of these situations you are fixated on. Ian Carter, the head councilman, abruptly changes gears. How is your investigation going? He asks, flipping open a crammed manila folder. It's ongoing, Carter says, unsurprised. He hoped it wouldn't come to this, but he prepared for the contingency nonetheless. Division agent Trax cannot carry out his duties properly without that key. I'm very well aware of that, but if the audience had it, we would have been compromised already. You don't know that, and frankly, that is not the issue. It sounds like it is, Carter snorts. Through a forced, unnatural smile, the councilman states his ultimatum. The progress you've yielded is not sufficient to what we have put into its expansion. What are you saying? You're operating at a deficit. If there is no improvement in two months' time, we will terminate the Minutemen Division and other avenues will be pursued. Since the day he stepped foot into Langley, Carter seen both operatives and officials alike get cold feet. As detrimental as the past is, people are more comfortable with reverting to that than pursuing an unprecedented future. In an on-demand world, patience is in short supply, and as they say, the vision of Rome was not built in a day. Neither was this nation. Missions never go as planned. The moment the first bullet is fired, tactics evolve, and any soldier who has had their boots on the ground knows this. Politicians, lawyers, and academics alike don't, and from Carter's experience, never will. With nothing to lose, Carter stands to give his final statement. There is a constant debate as to what the real motives behind Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation were. Some say he hated slavery all along, and it was always his plan. Others argue that it was a strategic move to bring the Union back together through military force. Even if Lincoln abolished slavery solely for strategic purposes rather than a moral obligation, it is clear by the end of the time he was re-elected, he found slavery to be an abomination. Although the Civil War may have begun to preserve the Union, it ended with the liberation of all slaves. How often do we start something knowing what the middle and end results are going to be? You have made a mistake by creating a false correlation between the past and the present, Mr. Carter, the head councilman shouts, slamming the dossier down. And you have made an even bigger mistake by presenting it here. Then why don't you tell me what you truly expected the division to accomplish? Because it'd be asinine to expect results like the ones I clearly have. Carter begins, stepping forward. Sit down, the head councilman yells, rapping his gavel on the table. No, Carter ignores the order. Enlighten me. How has the success of one unorthodox agent brought reason to cut funding to the most efficient and successful program this government has brought into law? Please, explain. That is enough. Scoffing, Carter answers his own question. Just because you have lacked the capability of micromanaging every part of this operation, that does not mean results cannot and are not made. There will be order in here, he shouts, breaking his gavel in two. Carter does not sit. 
nor is he finished. You're all hypocrites, not patriots. I said that is enough. American lives have been saved. Children have lived to see their families again. And parents are better able to raise their kids in security because of what my team is doing. And before he can listen to any more of their bureaucratic reprimand, Carter shakes his head and turns to walk out. We have not finished debriefing you. Go to hell! And with that, Carter exits and slams the door behind him. With clear profanity being muffled behind the thick door, Lisa Rogers looks up with a giant smile. There are only two things that can change Carter's cool, tempered demeanor into the hothead he is right now. Bureaucrats and stupid people. Often, the two overlap. Went well? She asks, handing him a fresh cup of coffee. Walk with me? Carter asks, grabbing the much-needed drink. What did they say? She asks. We in the green? We are not even out of the red, Carter scoffs. That's not what needs to be the focus, though. If they don't find that key, the division's funding is the least of their worries. Where is that key, Lisa? Is that what they were giving you trouble over? Carter shrugs. In part. Please tell me you have a lead. We do, actually. Carter stops dead in his tracks. And? And? She hesitates, trying to figure out the best way to put it. And you're going to be pissed. Boston. Save the USA! No more cults! Where is your God now? Never-ending protests. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but so many opinions these days are not backed with any sort of legitimate facts. Which, if you think about it, yes, it is a bad thing. Emotion is the main tenet of argument, and the deeper the opinion, the more flamboyant the emotional drownings of reason are. But hey, that's an unintended consequence of the First Amendment protection guarantee. Stupid ideas are allowed to be heard. Validation of said moronic opinions? That is an entirely different discussion, and one few are willing to have. Isla works her way through the atheist, scientific, and political worshippers, all of whom profess brainwashing of others without seeing the irony of the critical theory propaganda they fill their ears with. First off, don't these people have jobs? Even if they don't, the most effective use of their time is shouting en masse? Secondly, yeah, they have the right, but what good is cynicism? Everyone knows Congress is doing jack squat. The private sector has always been more efficient at building. Everybody also knows about the children of the Ordian right and their efforts to undermine the constitutional republic and dismantle the democratic processes that allow these idiots to be out here in the first place. A little less talk and more action from the everyday citizen would go a long way. After all, faith without works is dead. Their protest is just organized speech with no clout, making it a moot effort. No point in quoting scripture to these people, though. Anybody who does just gets eaten alive like every other minority throughout history. Finally making through the suffocating crowd, nearly being slammed up against the giant glass window of Ned's sandwich spot, Isla sees him. Forgetting the claustrophobic conditions of the unhygienic, sweaty protesters, her whole world stops and pinpoints this moment. With Micah's pleasing grin melting her heart, he no doubt is reading the article said to reshape history. Although the story focuses more on debunking the mysterious vigilante known as the American Devil, a less than obvious ripoff of the comic books, that isn't what she thought about when reading it herself through the lens of her journalism expertise. No photo has been taken of him, no one was killed in the event, dozens were rescued, and it appears that the Ordians have been outmatched yet again. Reading between the lines, the man's heart is strong, immense, and will only continue to grow as he acts for the citizens of this nation. In a poor attempt, Isla tries rubbing away the rose tint that her blushing cheeks have created upon thinking of the devilish American. 
but it only makes the blush more prominent as she steps into the restaurant. What are you smiling at, Mr. Rouge? She asks, hoping he doesn't notice her schoolgirl infatuation. It's just good to see someone trying to make the difference, he casually says, looking up to Isla. And he holds up the article to show her the headlining photo. No one knows what he looks like. All they have is his trademarked USA tag on a wall. That and the victim swearing that a demon attacked them. Stuffing the article into his journal and then into his backpack, Micah's grin remains plastered on his face. Where most would see narcissism, she just sees a guy who's proud of a noble achievement. Granted, it may be getting a little to his head. Well, I heard that a girl got a photo of him one time. She thought the horns on his mask were kind of cute. Micah's beaming smile is wiped off his face, and in turn, is put onto hers. Nothing like humbling her man. Well, a man. One she hopes will be hers. I'm pretty sure he insisted that she properly dispose of it, Micah says. And she did. No digital copies, only a single hard copy. Rumor has it those were her exact terms. Did you ever think that he was still a rookie when she got that photo? Excuses are like armpits. Everyone has them and they all stink, Isla says, her smile getting bigger as she watches him squirm. All women are sadistic to one extent or another, are they not? Micah, mocking her with a set of annoying puppet hands, completely misses a chip Isla throws his way, the salty snack poking him in the eye. Real mature, Micah laughs. Taking a bite of his sandwich, Micah nearly spits out his food with the thought that he's been mulling over. Have you ever thought about... Just a second. Isla cuts him off and drops her chin to her chest, bowing her head before muttering a prayer under her breath. Not here, Micah mutters, checking over his shoulder with a ready excuse for anyone shooting them a weird look. However, an amusing idea comes to him, and as he chucks a chip of his own at Isla's bowed head, she manages to block the incoming projectile with a flick of her wrist. Lifting her gaze a moment later, she can't help the smug look that creeps across her face. Hiya, she whispers. Please, how'd you do that? Micah rolls his eyes and picks up the chip she just swatted down, tossing in a second time. Attempting to repeat the ninja feat, she fails miserably as it falls right down her shirt. We walk by faith, not by sight, she mumbles, weaseling the chip out before popping it in her mouth. Anyway, what were you saying? Have you thought any more about that key? He asks. Kind of, she says with a shrug and a bite of her own sandwich, glancing at the chain hanging around his neck. Following the connecting links to his chest, her thoughts quickly divert from the key to his broad chest that it hangs in front of. I'm starting to think that it's not linked to the audience, she blurts out. He scratches his bare chin. Not having his beard is still a foreign experience, but in all honesty, shaving has been the most logical thing to do. Trends come and go, and right now beards are obsolete by today's aesthetic standards. And with him being the masked hero, the risk outweighs the discomfort of his itchy neck. But they had it on them that night. Maybe they stole it. From who? The division didn't exist then. Says who? Isla asks, lowering her voice. Who says you were their first recruit? Not buying it, Micah shuts down the conversation as people begin filling in at an exponential rate. Apparently, protesters gotta have their union-sanctioned lunch break too. Maybe we should talk about this somewhere else. Isla reluctantly concedes. It's not that the two of them have nothing else to talk about, but it's nice to see progress with Micah. He never explicitly says it, but he mourns Kim every time they bring up topics like this. She sees the change mostly when talking about the Minutemen division. His motives used to be about revenge, but as time has gone on, as they've talked through the past, it's become clear that Kim's tragic death has blessed many lives. It was a spark over a puddle of gasoline. That's the radical nature that many subscribe Christianity to these days, simply because these people of faith work to make sense of life's madness, finding God's hand in sorrow. Disregard the Muslim extremists who actually believe that a chauvinist wet dream will be their reality if they bomb infidels to kingdom come. 
ignore the irony of radical atheists as they worship powerful governments or themselves rather than a power that supersedes man's reach, giving these finite groups the ability to alter the liberty of humankind. Yes, there are radical Christian sects, but no, the moderate white Christian are specifically the problem of the century. People are so terrified of a tyrannical theocracy that they don't realize one is being created right before their very eyes as they pay homage and their respective tithes to the state. You still up for tonight? Micah asks her, taking the last bite of his turkey Swiss sandwich. Before she answers, her phone vibrates and she holds up a finger. Uncle Carter, she smiles and blurts out the name, freezing Micah to his core. He's known for a while now that Isla is Carter's niece, and upon Micah learning that Carter knew that he knew that Carter knew he was hanging out with said niece, the anxiety from the circular logic has only grown. The slew of issues really began when he originally approached Carter about the photograph situation. He couldn't hide it. It was all caught on the security footage that the division pulled the doctor up before putting it back in the system. That's when Carter made it very clear of the thin ice Micah is now on, putting an obvious underlying sentiment at play here. Having never mentioned his boss by name, Isla is blissfully unaware of this in-the-head drama Micah is constantly engaging in. All she knows about Micah's superior is that the guy is a power-hungry, anal-retentive prick. There's always the possibility that parental love will override Carter's senses, and he'll order Micah to leave Isla alone. She's Carter's only living relative, and he hers. The tragic death of parents or a sibling is never an easy thing. Micah knows this better than most, but for some reason, Isla has always looked on death with optimism and hope. Instead of going into a destructive shell, she holds her head up. She never became weak using her circumstances as an excuse to give up or do something stupid, unlike Carter and Micah, both of whom let emotions get the better of them. So one would think that this maze of clandestine information would be where Micah's anxiety was thriving, but it's not. His freakout comes from the worry that his boss will discover the secret key. He's been hesitant to tell Carter about it, and he's not sure as to why. The fact that he found it the same night Carter approached him may be coincidence, but also might not be. So, rather than deal with that conversation, Micah just follows the deep feeling in his gut and keeps quiet about it. Uh-huh, she says with a pause, sending the most natural wink Micah's way, his heart giving a surprising flutter. No, I'm just at lunch with Micah. Tell him I say hi, Micah says, forcing his enthusiasm. Another wink with another flutter. Okay, I'll do that. I love you too. Oh, by the way, he says hi. Okay, bye, she says, hitting the end key before looking up with a wide grin. It's been a long time since she's felt this happy. She has her good days and her bad ones, like everyone. But since her parents, since that time, she's never felt true joy until maybe today in this sandwich shop. Of course I am still up for tonight, she exclaims. I've been looking forward to it all week. Mike has been booked literally every day this past month, taunting the newspaper and saving lives, so they haven't been able to simply hang out. She constantly must tell herself that it's part of the process. Romance or not, she must take a step at a time. Here a little, there a little. He likes spending time with her, and for now, that's enough. You're in charge of the movie. Snacks are all mine. Deal, Michael says, giving her a wink of his own. And like him, her heart dances. Checking his watch, Micah's eyes nearly pop out of his head. Crap! That thing with the dude, right? I'll see you tonight. Darting from the diner and onto the street, he almost gets hit by an erratic taxi making his way through the mostly peaceful protest. Don't go dying on me now, you devil, Isla whispers. Glancing down at her uneaten sandwich, she sees that Micah left his backpack unzipped with the top of his dark blue journal peeking out from inside. He's always religiously scribbling away in that thing. She asked him about it one time, and all he told her was that ever since Kim's death, he kept one. That's it. Who knows what he writes or why. Micah might not even know the reason in all honesty, but with fate tempting her to open it up and answer her questions, part of her is terrified by the potential darkness of the man she's falling in love with.
belief in God's hand in our lives yields the natural realization of the devil's. In the end, though, if she hopes to start a relationship with him, trust must be there, darkness or not. Instead of giving in, she shoots him a quick text. Hey, you forgot your bag. I'll bring it tonight. A split second later, she gets a reply. Thanks, you're the best. As she reads the words he sent her, the roar of Micah's beefy motorcycle quickly erupts, zooming past Ned's sandwich spot, clipping the leg of one of the more aggressive protesters. They had it coming, he'd say, shrugging his broad, meaty, rock-hard shoulders at the senseless quarry. Damn, she thinks. I am head over heels for this man. White's Campaign Office If Mike is being honest with himself, there is a future with Isla. Now, whether it's intimate or not, he has yet to figure out. But as of right now, he absolutely loves Isla's friendship. It comes down to trust, and not from her, but from himself. He doesn't know what he's ready for in life, let alone in a relationship. Despite it being out of character, it's why he hasn't made any rash moves with her. His relationship with Kim and every relationship before her was fiery to say the least. However, when she died, so did the old Micah. You're late, a boyish man arrogantly announces. Walking into the stuffy office, Micah's completely amazed the room isn't inside an American history museum. The bookshelves don't have the pseudo wear that franchise designers give new furniture and could very well be decades old. There's a direct correlation to quality and mass, and Micah is willing to bet that if he had to move one, that their authenticity would be proved by their weight. Frames line the wall wherever a book burden shelf isn't, and are filled with torn out pages from journals, historical original black and white photos, and signed documents from what Micah can only imagine are the nation's founding. Even the desks and chairs arranged around the room have a classic look that complements the interns, employees, and volunteers who all seem to have gotten the dress code memo donning suspenders, dresses, and attire fitting the ambience of the 1990s. Thank goodness, though, that the only things that don't look like they were crafted in 1993 are the computers and technology that support the functions of the office. Did you hear me? The boy man asks, indirectly repeating his disapproval of Micah's lack of punctuality. My bad, is all Micah says as he continues standing in awe at the decor. Governor White does not tolerate these kind of things. Micah smirks as he looks at the kid trying to be a responsible adult. Tardiness. That's what you want to say, isn't it? Micah says with a raised eyebrow as the man-child just scowls. And slapping the kid on the shoulder, Micah digs into the ego a little deeper. Chill out. This isn't student body president we're campaigning for. That's exactly my point, he retorts, folding his arms across his chest. Do you have any gold stickers by chance? Micah asks. Star ones are best. This question throws the kid for a loop as he responds. Why? <laughs> Don't worry about it, Micah chuckles. The joke would be beyond this kid. The meeting has already started, the man-child says, having nothing more to contribute to Micah's amusement as he points to an office off to his right. Be sure to keep quiet as you enter. I'll tiptoe. Like he did in grade school, Micah obnoxiously creeps towards the office. The bit backfires on him as the doors are also decades old, and as Micah opens the conference room door, his entrance is announced by its loud, screeching hinges. Immediately, Micah tries to quiet the noise by opening it slower, but it only heightens the pitch. Ah, Mr. Rouge, nice of you to join us. Thank you, Micah tentatively replies, stepping inside. Governor White, former tight end for the New England Patriots, turned beefy politician, holds out his thick arm. If you can find one, have a seat. The conference room is packed with a fuggy atmosphere, and rather than climbing through the huddled employees to the empty seat on the opposite wall, Micah stands where he is. Sorry I'm late. Not a problem. We were just discussing the media cycle. Governor says, his rough hand clicking the remote and bringing up the all-too-familiar headline. There is something rather entertaining about watching a man as large as Governor White stand and give a PowerPoint, Micah thinks, like a bear in a shirt tie. Who is this? White asks. The media is stumped by this vigilante, and so are the police. 
But are we? I want to pose the same question to you that this article is. Who is the American devil? The room is filled with an awkward silence which pleases Micah. Despite all the attempts to unmask his identity, nobody knows who he is. That is not a rhetorical question, White states, folding his fingers while he continues to wait, ignoring a deep, dark, shaking urge. If there's a single drop of alcohol within smelling distance, his hands shake, the aroma being second nature to him. Many times he has considered prohibiting drinking on the job, but in today's political climate, you might as well hope for wings to sprout from your back as you jump off a building. A timid young intern raises her hand, bringing White's mind back to reality. I think it's a man, and I think it's rather obvious, she claims, hushed whisperings emerging at the sexist comment. Okay, White is happy that someone at least speculated. Any other conclusions out there? A rather proper and prestigious looking woman immediately shoots her hand into the air, clearly having an important clarification. Why do you think it's a man? Micah shakes his head at the ridiculous postmodern route she's bound to take this discussion. Semantics and minutia are what they're about to argue over. The timid intern makes her stand. For starters, most interpretations of the devil are masculine and male. When you look at the world through a fundamentally flawed lens, you'll never have truth revealed to you. And yes, there is such thing as objective truth. There's also the argument that all points of views are flawed as the human condition plays out. We are all susceptible to fallacy. However, the systems of modernity allow us to find truth easier than ever before, and the critical theories that seek to uproot that are viruses, not remedies, to human progress. Appalled by such a preposterously broad conclusion, the stickler woman shouts out as if her worldview is common sense. The book of Genesis likens the devil to a snake, which is a common symbol for a woman due to its venomous nature. Pretty sure she pulled that one out of her ass, Micah thinks. Even if it was true, why is she so desperately wanting the term devil to be associated with woman? The timid intern holds up her finger, her fortitude shocking everyone. If you'd let me finish... Bruises the size of a man's fist have been found on the criminals in question, not to mention the reports and testimonies from said criminals. That's rather misogynistic. Oh my! Micah can't help it anymore. Get off your high horse, lady! Excuse me? You really think that any of these details matter? He then asks before the quiet clamoring of the room begins to roar. White's shaking hands begin vibrating, staying firmly clenched. The longer this contention goes on, the more irritated he becomes, and the stronger the damn withdrawals grow. He can handle the Marxist progressive perspectives all day. His tough skin makes the opinions of useful idiots like water off a rock. That's why he's hired as diverse as people as possible. If he's going to stick to the water analogy, why is also aware that all viewpoints have value. That truth coupled with patience will cut through the most embedded of false ideologies like a stream in a canyon. At the end of the day though, tolerance is extremely hard to come by for him. And as he thinks of his daughter Tiffany, the governor wills himself to block out the alcoholic aroma the argument over political correctness, and refocus on the task at hand. Okay, shut up! His shout the release of tension he needed, the room immediately obeying the command. It was a simple question that nobody apparently knows the answer to. I am the American devil. As White waits for that to sink in, one man bursts out in laughter. <laughs> oh my gosh, sir! You obviously could do some damage, but frankly, a man was seen at the crime scene, not a bear. You are the American devil, White bellows out, cutting off any laughter the man's joke may have stirred. The man abruptly clamps his mouth shut in confusion. We are all American devils, White concludes. Men and women are both responsible for this nation, viciously fighting America's enemies. But sir, we are talking about an individual, the pompous woman says. Wrong, Governor White bluntly shouts. This character, this vigilante, whatever you want to call him, he gets what I'm trying to tell you people. 
put the fear of God into those seeking to destroy this country. Micah almost raises his hand to protest the erroneous claim, but resists the unwise impulse. It was just a simple publicity stunt, he thinks. Carter gave him the mask, and he just rolled with it. Marketing 101. And since the United States of America is its fighting citizens, White continues, standing as he does, that is exactly how we will approach our campaign for the presidency. We appeal to the American people. The room explodes in another uproar of dissent and grievance. The people do not elect you. Congress does. And the people elect them. White roars back at the pending riot. He's never had a temper. Not in the core and not even when he drank. But this bureaucratic bullshit just might change that. If we appeal to them, Congress will have no choice but to listen and vote with them. If Congress is filled with the men and women, I know it is. They will vote for me out of fear of losing their seat of power. That's rather idealistic, sir, the timid lady states. Members of Congress are in office until they die. Or, she slowly states, given her uncertainty with even this option, in the rare chance they give up their seat of power of their own free will and choice. The people can remove them from office, White simply states. Raised eyebrows and uncomfortable looks scatter across the packed conference room, vaguely recalling the history lesson of a Stanley Braysworth. For the better or worse, it's what the media does best, sways the court of popular opinion. Not only do they have the uncanny ability to do so, but they are also incentivized through grants, tax write-offs, and a dozen other programs and loopholes the federal government provides them. Taking in a deep breath, White continues, hoping to pop the faithless bubble that has been blown up around these people. There have been some in this country that have done a very good job at masking the most important part of the 29th Amendment. Section 2 states that if at any time a member of Congress abuses his or her power and privileges, the citizens may petition for a removal of said official. A variety of wide eyes emerge as people turn to their smart devices for instant fact-checking capability. Not waiting for people to realize that he has his history down, White repeats himself. Again, we will appeal to the American people. So, Micah raises his first concern. The campaign is using fear to get you into the White House? Vote for me or else? That's a vulgar conclusion, Mr. Rouge. And the answer is no. We will be the voice of the people. We empower them as the original founders intended. The idea and value of checks and balances has eroded due to past corrupt election cycles. The ability for leaders to hear the people's voice is gone. And it won't be long before it is written as ancient history. White knows there will still be reluctance to this proposed strategy, but they will see soon enough. The Ordian Reich is gaining ground and has infiltrated numerous government resources to push their tyrannical Marxist views forward. They've done it in such a brilliant fashion that the public considers them a conspiracy theory rather than the reality they are. This genius tactic is extremely difficult to combat. It usually is exposed through hubris as those implementing this art of deception begin announcing their intentions rather than misdirect the public. Politicians these days often forget to apply Saul Alinsky's rules. However, the Ordian Reich has not made this mistake. As he begins to see the fear and doubt spread across the team, White summons a tone that he hasn't used in quite some time. Trust me, this will take some aggressive patience, but it is our best course of action. We appeal to the American people. It's an old school tactic, but how can anyone argue with that kind of hope, vigor, and stoicism that Governor White brings to the table, let alone Micah? Plus, he wasn't put on this detail to market campaign models. Mike is here to protect the governor. 
Carter believes this man to be the foundation that will obliterate the children of the Ordian Reich. And although he doesn't have the whole picture, in the short time he spent in this room, Mike has seen enough to believe. This guy is so idealistic, it's crazy. But a little hopeful insanity might just be what this country needs. Let's get to work. White finishes, and with no other invitation needed, the team begins shuffling their way out of the stuffy room. Mr. Rouge, White says before Micah can exit. You have a moment. The governor leads Micah into his office before taking a seat. Glancing at the desk he sits behind, Micah does a double take. Is that? It is. White smiles. The original desk in the Oval Office. After the last presidency remodeled the entire White House, this was one of the first things to go. How did you get it? How did you get this assignment? The governor asks with a smirk, hinting at their mutual associate. I appreciate you coming on this campaign. Carter always seems to come through, Micah says, acknowledging the obvious character strength of his boss. Yes, he does. He's also very loyal, the governor says, pausing and reaching for his mini fridge to collect his thoughts, the cool, brisk air reaching Micah across the room as he opens it. Would you like something to drink? Water will be fine. The governor chuckles, reaching and tossing Micah a bottle. Not a drinker? Never have and never will be, Micah says, cracking the bottle open, taking a swig of the icy bottled beverage. Don't ever go back on that, he says, eyeing Micah for a moment. White opens his can of Coke Zero, the hiss of pressurized carbonation echoing in the room before he takes a sip of the bubbly liquid. I used to be. What made you drop it? Micah asks, taking a seat. My ladies. Your wife and... White likes this kid, but he doesn't entirely trust him yet. She was one of them, a remarkable woman. I hope you have the chance to meet her, he says, taking another sip before redirecting the conversation. You have a wife, Mr. Rouge? Chuckling, Micah simply shakes his head. No, sir. A girlfriend? Boyfriend? <laughs> nope. Micah gives another slight laugh. This guy does not shy away from anything. That's a bunch of bullshit. Look at you. Why would someone like you choose to be single? As the governor says this, Kim's ring dangling from his neck instantly becomes heavier. Micah tries to shrug it off. The governor meant nothing by it, but for some reason the brief flash of her memory makes a physical appearance in his discomfort. I haven't really had the best of luck with relationships, is all Micah can manage. So I've heard, White solemnly says, being reminded as to why Carter recruited Micah in the first place. I take it you understand the real reason you're here on my campaign then? I do, Micah says. And I know that you know of the Ordians. Again, Micah confirms, nodding his head. Do you know what they're after, Mr. Rouge? Power, like anyone in politics. I won't take offense to that, the governor chuckles, leaning up to face Micah. The Reich believes that the system we have is fundamentally flawed because of its checks and balances, that we aren't as efficient as we could and should be. I'm not quite following, sir. They think we are gridlocked beyond repair that the Constitution is out of date. Their plan is to make our three branches of government into one in order to perfect and purify our society and are using the guise of class warfare to propagate their agenda. How do you know that? I just do, White says, cutting off the long discussion before it even begins. The idea and realization came the second he put down the bottle and walked away from Harris, his eyes opening as this clarity became part of his vision. Micah, however, just assumes Carter is how he came by this information, so instead asks, how do they plan on doing it? That is the real question, and one that I cannot answer right now. My guess, if it were me, eliminate the power and agency of the people first, 
After that, choose a branch of government that meets the agenda's needs, eliminating the other two. Okay, Micah begins, not entirely sold on the idea. Which branch of government? You're making me guess some more, White says, taking another sip. In an almost apologetic fashion, Micah takes a sip of his own drink, not knowing how to proceed other than shutting up. If Carter were here, he'd about have a heart attack seeing a speechless Micah. The lawmakers, White then says, giving the kid a break. Although the Ordians have already infiltrated the presidency, Congress represents the people the best, and if they are to have a compliant populace, sway the officials of said populace. So where do I come into play? Micah thought he knew what his assignment was, but with this new information, he's sensing there's a difference in what Carter expects and what the governor does. They want me dead because of what I know and have speculated. If elected, I can and will throw a massive wrench into their machine. Finishing his coke in one gulp, White crushes the can. Protect me and hunt them. Simple enough, Micah says. Just me? Mr. Carter has a lot of confidence in devils. The governor knows, Micah thinks. He knows who Micah really is. I hope I can live up to those expectations then. You and me both, my friend. White chuckles. Another long silence fills the room, and White knows that there is something else on Micah's mind. Sir, Micah tentatively asks, trying to find the best way to articulate his question. Can I ask you a personal question? Ask away. White is hesitant, but not entirely resistant. Is it true, what the media is saying about you? It always comes to this. That's no surprise. White can't keep running from it, but now, now is not the time, and in a kind but firm admonition, the governor cuts Micah's thought process off. The only answer you need right now is that no matter how dark an individual's past, inspiration always starts from somewhere. Fair enough, Micah humbly nods knowing how true that statement really is. Before you go, Mr. Rouge, there is somebody I want you to meet. White says, standing up and walking to the door. I want you to meet your partner. I thought you were confident in my abilities, Micah jabs, giving the governor a hard time. I said Carter was. I still have my doubts. White jabs back. Micah Rouge, meet Officer Dan Trax. In front of Micah, a freight train steps forward, holding out the biggest hand he's ever seen. The governor is big, but is more because of his height and status as a former football player. This man in front of him, he is another breed of massive. Nice to meet you, Micah states, surprised but not in the least bit intimidated. And it's nice to meet you. Dan already sized the man up when he saw him step into the meeting. The sarcastic attitude towards the secretary wasn't entirely impressive, but the kid at the front desk is an ass, so he gave Micah the benefit of the doubt. As for the reputation coming from Carter, Dan has yet to see it. Well, Governor White awkwardly says, I'll let you two lovebirds get to know each other. He slaps Micah on the shoulders before leaving the room. The meeting took longer than he expected, and as much as he'd like to chat with the train, Micah's not going to cancel his night with Isla. Hey, I've got to get going, but let's sync up tomorrow morning and talk security stuff, yeah? Whatever, Dan scoffs. Micah's ears perk up at the asshole tone. Did I miss something? Are you serious about this job or not? Dan coldly asks. I am. And like I said, did I miss something? This guy may be big, but Mike has taken down big guys before. They have the same weaknesses that any bro has. A hyoid bone, knees, and a pair of testicles. Then that's walk and talk. Wouldn't want you to miss your date. Who said I have a date? Michael retorts, looking at the chip on Dan's shoulder. No ring on your finger? Eager to leave? It's a date. 
his detective skills always pay off and catch people by surprise. All right, Sherlock, let's walk and talk then, Micah says, bowing like the good gentleman that he is, letting Dan, the man, take the lead. Stepping into the darkened city, Micah starts walking without giving Dan the opportunity to see the direction, stopping in front of his bike. Not believing what he's seeing, Dan asks, I was wondering whose that was. Now his tone changes, Micah thinks, chuckling to himself. Impressed, he asks, pushing the ignition button, bringing the beast to life. Man, Dan moans, having missed that sound. The roaring engine, the purring idle, and most of all, the wind in his face as he grips the handlebars. You have a bike? Had, he replies, his eyes shut tightly, picturing the fond memories. What happened? Micah asks, surprised that he wants to hear more. Ex-wife. Avoiding any further explanation, he gives the short reply. Another story for another time. Micah picks up on the hint, bringing the conversation back to business. So what makes you think the two of us have what it takes to protect the governor? Dan shrugs his shoulders. I don't know about you, but I've been a cop all my life. My dad was a cop, his dad was a cop, and now I'm a cop. Is that your resume or genealogy? Micah asks. What makes you think you're qualified for the job? Dan shrewdly asks. Wouldn't you like to know? Since Micah can't use his real reason as to why he's qualified, he uses his cover. I was in special forces and started my own security firm after I got out a couple years ago. You look awfully young, and you look rather old. Before Micah can finish, he is tackled to the ground. Instinctively, he rolls onto his back, just in time to see a knife coming straight at him. Shooting his arms up in an X, the forearm of the attacker slams into the block, and as Micah slithers his way up and out from underneath his attacker, he knocks him unconscious with a knee to the groin and an elbow to the brainstem. Look out! Micah shouts, but Dan already senses the attack. Dan dives as a shot is fired from behind, the projectile missing its mark entirely. Micah isn't as lucky, though, as a second shot goes off, the bullet grazing his arm. Before he can move and shift his fighting position, Micah is grabbed from the side by two more attackers. Seeing this, Dan picks up a bottle from the gutter and tosses it to Micah. Catching it, Micah smacks one of his attackers on top of his head with a loud, hollow thud. A third shot is fired, hitting the wall Dan's using as cover. As it ricochets, the sound tells Dan exactly what he needs to know. Fearlessly, he picks up a broken brick and immediately finds the shooter. As one more shot rings out, Dan charges, closing the ten feet between them in a half second. This panics the man, and before he can get a final shot off, his skull is crushed. Dan turns to help Micah, but there is no need. Micah stands victorious with the glass bottle in one hand and the thumbs up in the other. Nice work. Micah took out three, while Dan took care of one. Granted, Dan's attacker had a gun, but it's the speed with which Micah took care of them that's impressing the former cop. Maybe you're not such a patsy after all, Dan says. You thought I was a patsy? Micah responds, incredulously. You ever been shot before? Dan asks, seeing the blood on his arms. Micah shrugs. I've been stabbed. Well, Dan says, you're lucky it was a low-caliber bullet. It could have been a lot worse. How do you know it was a low-caliber? The sound. And, Dan points to the wall, when he shot at me, didn't do anything to the wall when the bullet hit, just bounced off. Is that why you charged him? Micah asks, liking this guy's fighting style. Yep. Knew if I did get shot, chances were it wouldn't be too bad. What if he got you in the head? He was too scared and shaky to aim that well. <laughs> Pissed himself when he saw me coming. Micah laughs in agreement. These guys were no professionals, but even so, it isn't a coincidence that they attacked the two of them when and where they did. You think they're Ordians? Micah asks. Dan lifts the sleeve of the shooter to reveal a small tattoo of a single white star. Yep. What's that? Micah asks, staring at the tattooed star. It's their mark. How has he never noticed this before? Out of all the Orians he's encountered, Micah has never noticed a uniform tattoo on any of them. How did you know about that? Remember that genealogy you were making fun of me over? 
My history of law enforcement comes with its perks. Right. This guy knows more than he's telling him, but now is not the time to interrogate him. Micah's late. I'll take care of it, Dan says. I know the department, and it'll take less time for me than you. You can leave for your date. You sure? Go, before I change my mind, he says, waving Micah away. Thanks, man. I'll see you tomorrow then. Mike ignites the engine, and the bike roars to life. Hitting the throttle, Mike appeals out of the alley, leaving Dan alone and envious of such a beautiful machine. There's a wooden wrap at the front of her apartment, one that causes Isla to beam from ear to ear upon hearing it. Plugging in her popcorn maker, she skips over, twists the rickety knob, and whips open the entrance to her apartment, where her Cheshire grin is immediately wiped away. What happened? Blood-soaked, Micah glances at his sleeve, continuing to clutch at the injury. Ran into a little bit of trouble. Isla prods at the wound. Sorry, she declares as Micah lets out an annoyed wince. I'm really sorry, it's just... never mind. In the years she spent with her uncle overseas, she became rather accustomed to battle injuries. Most of what she saw were on the level of Micah's gunshot, but there were the occasional serious ones that brought the reality of her situation closer to home. Never did she think the fight and its effects would be at her front door. But gazing at Micah's injury, Isla is reminded of the solemn reality that yes, the country is in a cold civil war. I have some stuff, I think, she says, locking the door behind Micah. It honestly looks worse than it is, but Micah doesn't let her know this and leans into the drama. He'd never admit this out loud, but Micah is one that slightly relishes theatrics, especially when attractive women are involved. Adding another wince upon Isla's return, Micah turns on the charm. I still brought the movie. Encumbered by an enormous first aid kit, Isla lets out a slight chuckle. I'm glad because that was the first thing I thought when I saw you bleeding all over. Whipping out a rag, she soaks it in isopropyl alcohol and pulling out a pair of shears, cuts Micah's shirt off before he can give any sort of protest. Jeez, Micah says. Buy me dinner first. Blushing at his comment, Isla reciprocates the sarcasm by pressing the alcohol-soaked rag right onto the grazed wound. Completely taken off guard by the pain, Micah bites his tongue, holding in the slew of profanities that he is dying to release. After a moment of watching him squirm, Isla removes the cloth before gently blowing on the wound, her minty breath causing any remaining alcohol to evaporate. Yes, she brushed her teeth, swished some mouthwash, and threw in a piece of gum for good measure before he came over. She likes the hell out of Micah. Was it them? She asks, the memories of Kim's death hovering in the back of both their minds. Yeah, Micah quietly says. Not only did the smell of her breath wafting back at him bring him to a state of sobriety, but the way her eyes shifted to his forced him to immediately reflect on her, on them and their future. He cares for her, much more than he ever thought he would. He can no longer afford to be flippant with his missions or with his life. I wasn't alone, though, he says. Oh, and who am I to thank for saving your life? Isla asks, only partly mocking him, but at the same time, relieved. Who knows how much worse it could have gotten. I was with some retired cop. Is he okay? She then asks, cleaning the rest of his arm with ease before bandaging it. Yeah, he's the one who took out the gunman. My hero, she says, knowing full well the comment will annoy Micah. How many of them were there? Four. How many did you take out? She asks, her eyes widening in surprise. Three. She knew what she'd signed up for the moment she let her heart fall for Micah. The life of soldiers and their spouses is a familiar one, and as dangerous and heartbreaking as a life like that can be, Isla likes hearing that Micah is not only competent, but extremely effective. That, and there will always be a certain level of sex appeal to toughness for her. After a momentary silence while Isla finalizes her first day touches, Micah finds the courage to ask her something that has always puzzled him. After everything he knows she's seen overseas with Carter, after all the heartbreak she's been through with the death of her parents and Kim, 
not to mention the global catastrophes and bureaucratic pandemics, she still finds a way to believe. How do you do it? Do what? How do you do this uh, optimism thing that you always do? It's belief. It's faith, she smirks. It's vague and definitely not the answer she knows he wants. But it's the truth. She just does. That doesn't really answer my question, he chuckles. Fine, let me be frank with you then. How do you believe in a god? Is that why you have a devil as your symbol? She jests. I'm serious. How do you believe in a god? How do you not believe in a god? She retorts. There's no jest in this comment. There's a clear difference between white-knuckling life and belief, faith, and hope that a higher power has her best interest in mind. That's not a fair question, Micah scoffs. And why not? Why are you allowed to question my faith, but I can't question your lack of it? I'm not questioning your faith. But you are, Isla states, cutting Micah off. And I don't mind if you do, but let me ask you this. Why is it wrong to believe, despite the horrors of this world? Isn't it obvious? Micah thinks. Isn't it obvious that a loving God wouldn't make room for greed, lust, murder, sloth, envy, all of which happen on a global scale? Isn't it obvious that if there was a God, they're just watching humans destroy themselves? There are men and women who think they are gods, and it's these kind of people that are the ones orchestrating the travesties of the world, or at best are being allowed to by the God Isla believes in. It's not, Isla then says, answering her own question. Because it's not God who murders, rapes, who's involved with the trafficking of children, and who has allowed for corruption to infiltrate our institutions. It's mankind who does those things. Then why doesn't God do anything about it? Why doesn't he just make people do the right thing? <laughs> Are you being serious right now? Isla laughs. Does he not see the irony in what he just asked? Of course I'm being serious. If he's so perfect and omnipotent, then why not make us do the right thing? That sounds like communism and fascism, does it not? Micah claps his mouth shut. That's different. He mumbles. No, it's not, and you know it, she chuckles. America was founded on the belief in God and the idea that we should all have personal agency and liberty. Ironically enough, though, if we didn't have the ability to choose, then we'd have the fiction of utopia. But that's not the case, and whether by chance or accident, like with my parents, or due to targeted nefarious purposes, like with Kim, shit happens. You really believe that? Micah asks doubtfully. I do, she nods, and although secular walkers of life and atheists alike die a little inside every time she mentions this, she says it to Micah anyway. If you believe in what America stands for, you believe in a god whether you like it or not. Having leaned towards the ironic religious dogma of atheism like many of their generation, Micah chews on this for a minute. It's been messy, it's been bloody, but what other country in the world allowed for personal choice and growth on a massive scale before 1776? There was the royalty and the serfs, the elites and the slaves. It varied from generation to generation and from culture to culture, but there really wasn't any form of large-scale freedom and agency before America. The cynic inside didn't allow for them to think like this, let alone believe any of it. After Kim's death, it was solidified in both Micah's mind and heart that if there was a savior of mankind, the guy was giving him and everyone on this planet the good old middle finger. Now after this brief conversation with Isla, Maybe that's been a bitter and nihilistic interpretation of life and humanity. You thinking about Kim? Isla asks. Kind of, Micah nods. I'm thinking more about the concept of someone's faith building your own. We talked about it one time before she died. And? And I think it might be true. Micah touches his arm and the solid bandage Isla put around it. Yes, he handled himself around three of those thugs. And yes, he's handled himself around more. But maybe the fourth one in this instance. Maybe that one would have been the end for him. If it wasn't for Dan, 
Maybe he wouldn't even be having this existential moment. Well, to an extent, Ima says, tossing her things back into the first aid kit. There comes a point when we all have to lean on our own faith and strength, trusting that God has our best interests in mind. He doesn't need to say it, and Micah doesn't ask it, but Isla sees the sudden emotion within him. He wants to express everything to her, but he can't. Not right now. Not like this with his shirt off. Old Micah would have. Not Micah restored. You wouldn't happen to have anything that I could fit into, would you? Micah asks, holding up his blood-soaked and now tattered shirt. She chuckles. <laughs> I doubt it, but I'll check. A few seconds later, she comes back with a hideous sweatshirt. This is all I have. Whose is it? No idea. Maybe an ex-boyfriend's? Shame on you. Micah flirtatiously mocks, taking the sweatshirt and putting it on. A little snug, but it's better than being a shirtless tool. Popcorn? Isla winks. That gesture. Wait! He shouts, as if popping popcorn will doom them both. Literally, it's absurd. But figuratively speaking, if he doesn't act now, it very well might be true. Everything he's felt and expressed with this woman has been leading to something more. Something that he wants to build on. Without another moment of hesitation, Micah stands, gently and yet swiftly approaching Isla. What are you doing, Micah? She stammers out. She's waited for this moment for what seems like an eternity. And now that it's here, Isla freezes. Scared to death by the ramifications of the approaching kiss, she opens her mouth in protest but is silenced as Micah's lips press to hers.